Hello, and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Cubs PS Plus is proud to be part of the Fans First Sports Network as part of the Bleacher Bunch Productions, joining great shows like The Sun Ranto Show, Cup of Cubby Blue, and Baseball Rabbit Hole. In the coming weeks, I'll begin to move this podcast under that umbrella. I'm excited about the change, and I hope you all find some additional Cubs content to enjoy. In addition to my podcast feeds, you can also find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. Love the pod or hate it, please drop a review wherever it is you find your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you. Maybe you can share an episode with a friend. You can also support the Cubs PS Plus podcast through our Patreon at cubspsplus.patreon.com. There are multiple support tiers, and Patreon members will always have access to ad-free episodes, plus additional perks. Welcome into episode 58, the Geo Soto episode of this podcast. Fun fact, Soto was the first National League player to ever win NL Rookie of the Month. He won the award for his great start in April 2008, where he hit 341 with five homers and posted an OPS of 1.059. That's really impressive. There's a lot to talk about today. I get into the front office moves and rumors and what those might mean for the Cubs going forward. I also talk more about the various Kyle Hendricks rumors and how those might play into the Cubs roster construction decisions for 2024. Let's also talk through some hitting numbers and what the Cubs should target on the free agent and trade markets. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We go. Happy Halloween. Tonight's going to be game four of the World Series. Seven years ago, the Cubs were off today, having just won the last World Series game in Chicago to send the series back to Cleveland. I don't know what you were thinking at that point, but I don't know. I was happy the Cubs won game four four to push it back to Cleveland, or won game five to push it back to Cleveland. And I was just excited to have more baseball. I didn't really know if the Cubs were going to win. They had come back all season. They had been the best team in baseball all season and those last two games in Cleveland were magic I'm sure um, we'll talk plenty more about those uh, possibly later this week but this week I want to talk about the Cubs where they stand and how they can maybe get back to the being one of those teams we talk about making a deep run in the playoff Um, one of those topics I think we have to start with is the front office so it was announced this week or since I recorded last that Craig Breslow the uh, assistant general manager for the Cubs and head of their pitching infrastructure was hired by the Boston Red Sox to be their president of baseball operations. Um, that's a big move. Craig Breslow has done a great job in Chicago. They brought him in to help set up the pitching infrastructure they have today. And really that was the first step they took to split off pitching from hitting and really set up the development system they have now. And I think it's really paid off. He was brought in by Theo in 2019 and over the last four years has built up a staff that runs everything. You know, they try to run a consistent pitching development system top to bottom. So new draftees, they go to the complex league off season workouts. Everybody does instructs in the, in the complex league. The pitching message is largely the same at low a high a double a triple a in the majors. Pitchers are hearing the same message. I think over the first couple of years, of Craig Breslow being here, the Cubs saw the biggest impact on the Cubs turning some relief pitchers around. Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin, David Robertson, Chris Martin. A lot of those guys the Cubs were able to pick up for relatively cheap prices, turn their performance around, kind of rejuvenate their careers, 
Unfortunately, they wound up trading most of those guys at the deadline. But you could see the development in action. You could see the Cubs add a pitch. You could see the Cubs change a guy's pitch mix. You could see him alter some mechanics a little bit to get results up. And all throughout, the Cubs had been stacking up youth, young prospects, pitching prospects in the complex league, low A, Myrtle Beach, South Bend, Tennessee. And we've seen that pitching develop or pitching depth rise up through the system. And now we're starting to see it at the major leagues. I mean, Justin Steele, Javier Assad have been in the system for a long time. Justin Steele proved this year that he can be, you know, a borderline Cy Young candidate at his best. Javier Assad looks like a guy who can be a major league starter. And he's got talked about a little bit last week. He's got some interesting peripherals that, you know, he, he walks too many guys. He gives up a lot of barrels and some big hits, but also at the same time, his average exit velo is not that bit, not that high. He's been effective, doesn't strike guys out, but gets a lot of weak contact. And we'll see over the next year, you know, if that's going to continue. But at this point, there's no reason, I don't think, to see him as somebody who can't get outs in Chicago. He's done it for the better part of a season and a half at this point. And we're seeing relievers come up. Edward Azalei really stepped into his own this year. Uh, we saw Julian Merriweather was a maybe not a young guy, but he's a guy they picked up on waivers from Toronto and turned him around. They've got Luke Little, Daniel Palencia. They look like they can be major league relievers. Um, on the starting rotation side, Kate Horton is one of the best prospects in baseball. And Jordan Wick showed this year that he can get outs at the major league level. So what does it mean if Craig Breslow leaves? I've seen a lot of different reactions on social media. I've seen both from social media and beat writers and people who cover the Cubs. I understand it's it's never ideal to lose good people. Losing Craig Breslow could be a blow. We, we won't know for sure for a while. We will see what the Cubs replace him with. But at the same time, I will make the argument that if Craig Breslow is as good as we think he's been, if he has built this organization up to be a strong organization top to bottom, then losing him should not be catastrophic. They should have good people in place already who are going to carry on the same concepts. They still have Tommy Hadovy as the pitching coach. I know he's very active throughout the system working with pitchers. They've got a number of uh, coaches up and down the system that are going to stay. So one thing I want to see is now that Craig is gone, what do the Cubs do to replace him? Is there somebody in-house that they want to promote? At some point, it's going to mean bringing in somebody else from outside the system, and that can be good. You know, Sometimes you want to have a new voice come in with a different idea and just kind of change things up a little bit. doesn't mean a total overhaul. I don't think the Cubs are in a position to have to do that at all. But I think the Cubs are in a position where they can afford to lose Craig Breslow. Now we'll get into some of the other rumors. You know, There's also um, reports out there that the Mets are interested in hiring Dan Kantrovitz, who's in charge of Cubs scouting. He's the one that's run their draft over the last several years. He's done a great job. The Cubs have found a lot of talent in the draft. They've been able to get guys to sign for underslot. They found some what appear to be some real gems in the system. I mean, the last few number one picks, Jordan Wicks from 2021 was already in the major leagues. Cade Horton from 2022 got up as high as double A, and he looks like he is absolutely probably ready to make his appearance in Chicago at some point next season. They got Matt Shaw this year as their number one pick, and he already made it up to double A before, you know, in less than half a season, and looks like a guy who, again, might be able to make a debut in Chicago in 2024, certainly by 2025. 
And behind those guys, I think the biggest thing is the Cubs have done a good job over the years with number one picks. You know, Javi Baez and Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwarber and Ian Happ and Nico Horner. Just like the number one picks have panned out, which is good. But now they're actually starting to get more and more depth behind them. I mean, there are guys drafted, you know, the very last day in the teens that a lot of Cubs prospect guys are excited on because they've targeted guys that have a skill set, whether it's versatility or power. There's something they like about the player, and they've been able to get that guy signed, get him in the system. So, again, you know, if Dan Kantrovitz has built up a strong scouting group around him, and Dan has not gone yet, and hopefully he won't be. But again, like if he goes, hopefully there are plenty of people in the room that agreed with his decisions or, or maybe while he's in charge, I've led teams. I don't, I'm not the one that comes up with the best ideas on my team. My, my philosophy as a manager and you know, I don't need to get into my day job, but I, I work in the technology space and my philosophy is always to try to surround myself with smart people that have good ideas. So my group may be good at something. It may not have been my idea. It may have been the fact that I got the right people in the room, let the right people feel like they had the voice to speak and then listen to those good ideas and carry them out. So we don't necessarily know who's driving the draft decisions. Dan Kantrovitz looks like he's done a hell of a job. So I definitely want him to stay. But again, if he goes in isolation, he's a guy that can be replaced. There are other teams that draft well. Also, there are other organizations to potentially rate. I mean, the, the best thing about these rumors is it shows me that the Cubs are becoming the kind of organization that other teams want to look to and want to emulate. That's a good place to be. Now, at the same time, the, another rumor, or not rumor, but another report out there is that Andy Green is interviewed for the Cleveland Guardians job. And again, you know, he's their bench coach. He's the number two behind David Ross. The Cubs have already let their bullpen catcher and bullpen coach go this offseason, so they have a couple staff spots to fill. You know, Andy Green is a guy who's managed before. He's likely going to manage again, and, and all of these guys want to move up. So Craig Breslow was assistant general manager. That's a step behind Carter Hawkins, who's a step below Jed Hoyer. So if he wants to be promoted, and, and Craig is from Boston, so that also made a lot of sense for him to go back go back home. If he wants to get promoted, they either have to create kind of another title that fits in somewhere, or he has to replace Jed or Carter. And while that's certainly possible, I've not seen any reason why Jed or Carter need to go at this point. I know some people disagree about Jed and maybe don't know about Carter because Jed gets, and rightly so, Theo was the same way. Like Theo gets ultimately the bulk of the credit for building up that team that won the World Series in 2016. But at the same time, you know, Jed was with him just about every step of the way. So it's really hard to parse out what choices were Jed's and what choices were Theo's. And we'll never know. I mean, that's how it goes. We're not in the room. We're not in the room where it happens, so we don't, we don't have all that information. We can read between the lines. I think Theo was definitely a bigger risk taker. He swung for the fences a little bit more than Jed has so far. But now we'll see. This this is an off season where you know Jed can change that narrative a little bit. And I think the biggest thing about this off season is, as far as the Cubs go, you know, coming out of the what non rebuild rebuild. You know, Jed always said it wasn't a rebuild, but I mean, they traded away the entire old core almost entirely turned their roster over. Kyle Hendricks is the only guy from 2017. They're only, or 2016. They're only a few guys left 
from the 2018, 2019 teams. And, you know, that's kind of, that's where the Cubs are now. And so now it's time to build up. We saw at the deadline, they didn't trade, they bought, they, they weren't big buyers, but they didn't, they didn't sell. And they did add, add Jamer Candelario and, and Jose Quas. So this is a big off season. Now it's time to take, you know, take some of these kids, let the kids come up and be supplements. You've got a lot of um, prospect capital at the double A, triple A level. A lot of depth there. A lot of guys you can go to to fill bench roles, potentially maybe even win a starting job. But maybe more importantly, you've got guys that you can trade. And this offseason, when the Cubs are looking to do so much, it is probably not an ideal time to have the staff rated. So we'll we'll see how this comes out. Right now they've lost Craig Breslow. In and of itself, it's a loss because Craig Breslow is really good. But I don't think it's an insurmountable loss. If you start stacking them up, they lose Craig Breslow. Then if the Mets do hire Dan Kantrovitz, if Andy Green does go take a manager job somewhere, you know, if, if any, you know, if Craig Breslow takes some of his staff, some of his staff follows him to Boston, you know, there, if there is a drain on that, that's where we might start to see an impact. But again, you know, Jed is involved, was involved with bringing all these people in, in the first place. And technically Breslow came in under Theo's watch. Again, I don't know who, whose decision it was to go to Craig, you know, maybe it was Jed's, no idea. But now they have the opportunity to bring in new voices and bring in more people. I'm confident that there are a lot of talented baseball people out there. There are a lot of talented baseball people out there that are just waiting for new opportunities. So I think they'll have plenty of opportunity to hire good people. And the question will just come down to do they and how quickly can they get those people on and what impact does any of this turnover potentially have on the 2020, the off season ahead of the 2024 season. So we'll see. Um, I'm still very optimistic about this team. I think when we look at that AAA depth, there are outfielders, there's pitching, there are some infielders, there's speed, there's some power. There's a little bit of everything. And when you look at those prospects, I've said it before, you know, I mean, if you just look at the top outfield prospects, you've got Pete Crow Armstrong, PCA, you've got Kevin Alcantara, who's tearing up the Arizona Fall League, you've got Owen Casey, and you've got Alexander Canario, who we saw a bit of in Chicago this offseason, or this, at the end of the season. Those guys all bring power, speed, defense among themselves. And there is never going to be a point in time where all four of those are starting outfielders for the Chicago Cubs. So part of the benefit of having a strong farm system is, sure, you want to be able to fill in depth. You want to be able to bring guys up to cover injuries. You want to be able to fill some of the starter roles on the team and some of the bench roles on the team with young players who are relatively cheap and cost-controlled for several years. Ideally, you want some of those guys to grow into the job. Maybe PCA is the starting center fielder on opening day in 2024. Maybe he's a platoon player easing his way in. I think we saw this year, or this at the end of the season, obviously, Pico Armstrong is really fast. He's an absolutely amazing defender. I mean, that's been, he's proven that every, you know, day after day after day in the minor leagues. He's one of the few guys to ever get an 80 grade in anything um, for his defense. And yet he also showed there are going to be growing pains offensively. You know, he went 0 for 17 to end the season, did not get his first major league hit. I think he was pressing. I think it was a high-pressure situation with the Cubs trying to compete for a playoff spot. 
But there's no question he's going to have his learning curves offensively. He's done that at every level, but so far at every level, he's turned it around and been successful. But out of those guys, some of them are going to get traded. And one of the good things is that's an opportunity to go out and get talent that's not available in the free agent market. This offseason does not have the strongest free agent class. On the hitter side, Shohei Otani is, is still the top, and he is going to get a massive deal in spite of the elbow surgery. It's hard to say. I've seen limited reports on his elbow. He had, I think it was the revision surgery that Michael Fulmer just had. I don't think it was replaced, but he had Tommy John surgery a couple of years ago that replaced that tendon in the elbow. And I think it was repaired this off season. Now what I, or just after he ended his season, what we don't know, we haven't heard clear reports on the surgeon came out and said it was successful. So that's good. Um, he's not going to pitch in 2024. He's got a long re- rehab road ahead of him again. But he's been through it. He knows what to do. Guys have come back from two of these surgeries, and I would tend to think that he's going to be one that can do that. At the very, very least, we know that he's an elite hitter. He's an elite left-handed power bat, and he can come in and he can DH next year, and he can be one of the best power hitters in baseball from the left side. No question. And then Cody Bellinger... Obviously, the, we saw his turnaround in Chicago this year. He had an amazing season. He's going to get a big deal. And those are really the two biggest bats on the market. There are a couple others. Uh, Matt Chapman playing third base is a big one. The Cubs do need a third baseman. Um, personally, I'm not as high on him as I am on some of the others. But when you look up and down this roster, you know I think the Cubs need – what they were clearly lacking this year was depth at the top. You know, we, we've talked a lot on, I've talked a lot on this podcast about raising the floor. They started doing that in 2022. They, over the course of the year, they had a bunch of guys. They were trying to figure out, you know, guys who played well after Rizzo and Baez and KB and, and those guys were traded. And at the end of 2021, guys like Frank Schwindel and Rafael Ortega and some Patrick Wisdom, some of those guys came in and played really well. So 2022 was about finding out, are those guys dudes or not? And in many cases, they weren't. But the Cubs gave them their chance and moved them along. And we saw the Cubs get better in the second half of the 2022 season. Now, coming into this year, the roster on opening day was better than the year before, I think without question. But we also found that Edwin Rios, Luis Torrens, not starting with even a third outfielder, let alone a fourth, having Eric Hosmer and Trey Mancini and an offensive hole and Tucker Barnhart at backup catcher, there were still some issues with this roster. And we've all talked about it. We know what those problems were. But over the course of the season, I think Jed showed that he's on a winning path or he wants to be on a winning path. He was willing to eat money to move guys along. Um, Eric Hosmer was very easy. Eric Hosmer was very easy. He moved along... You know, he he came in for a league minimum. San Diego's still paying the bulk of his contract. And they gave him exactly 100 plate appearances. You know, when you bring a guy in, you're going to give him a little bit of run to see, you know, if, if a slow start is something the guy can overcome or if that's just what he's going to do. And Eric showed that, unfortunately, that that's what he was going to do. Unfortunately, similarly, Trey Mancini never really got himself going. So he was another guy that now they're going to be eating his money into next season. And he was let go in July, August. I can't remember. I have to look up the date. But they were willing to move him along when he wasn't producing. 
and the Cubs came up short, they had a lot of guys do a lot of good things. Cody Bellinger was back. He was great. Dansby Swanson, I know he gets a lot of grief from fans for his September performance, but he was a five-war player. That's a really valuable baseball player. And of the four shortstops, he posted the biggest war this year. Now, will he be better than Trey Turner long-term? Offensively, probably not. Defensively, he's better now and probably will be for a long time. So he had a good year. Nico Horner had a good year. Christopher Morrell was a little streaky, but he had a massive power year. You know, he had a great season. Ian Happ, I know, again, you know, the fans don't always love Ian Happ and what he brings, but he put up numbers that are virtually identical to what he put up in 2022. He swapped out some hitting for some walks. His OBP was right where it is. His power was right about where it typically is. Overall offensive production numbers were right where he was. And he got the extension, and there's some debate about whether extending Ian Happ for three more seasons after this one um, was necessarily the right thing given the young outfielders the Cubs had coming up. But I think sometimes the fans look at that too much as the Cubs, you know, building around Hap as a superstar. Hap's not being paid as a superstar. He's being paid as an above-average outfielder, and that's what he is. That's what his numbers say he is. That's what he's done the last two seasons, and he's earning his money. Right field, Seiya Suzuki did not have the start he wanted. He came in absolutely jacked preseason. Showed up to spring training. Clearly, he had put on muscle. Unfortunately, he had the oblique injury that took him out for a while. Was kind of up and down, slumping for a while. Seemed to have kind of lost his confidence. But then the last like month or so of the season, maybe the last probably the last two months, the Cubs sat him down for about five days. Let him reset, get a mental reset, came back, and he was one of the best hitters in baseball the last six, eight weeks of the season. He was the guy we always want to see. If, if Seiya Suzuki can come back next year and be that guy, he's going to really step this lineup up. But what the Cubs missed... The Cubs had decent depth, too. They got some good play from Nick Madrigal off and on. Patrick Wisdom had his moments. He had an absolute scorching April. They got them off to a good start. Miles Mastroboni did some good things. Mike Talkman really helped in the middle of the summer when Bellinger went down with his injury. So they got some good play. You know, Jan Gomes had a great season. Miguel Amaya really stepped up and reestablished himself as a you know a young future major league player. But what the Cubs lacked was... Just that the one or two more bats of star power in there. You know, you look up and down these playoff lineups, and you know if if you can take Ian Happ out of the three spot and get Dansby Swanson maybe down to the seven, Ian Happ is either leading off or maybe hitting sixth. All of a sudden, like we didn't necessarily love Dansby Swanson all the time as the fifth hitter, but if he's suddenly now the seventh hitter, that's a much deeper lineup, and the Cubs can do that. They have money to spend. I think they, depending on what they do with options like Hendricks and what players do with their options, you know, Stroman and Drew Smiley both have opt-outs. I don't think either one will, but they could. They have the ability to add a couple big pieces. And I don't think they need to add a ton. I know they have some holes to fill, but maybe Christopher Morrell is second base or third base. Um, maybe Matt Shaw can come up at some point during the season if the Morrell at third base thing doesn't happen. They've got... I don't know if Matt Mervis is a guy. You know, he's he's had great minor league numbers, was kind of up and down during his 99 plate appearances in the major leagues last year. I think he needs a little more run to see if he's a major leaguer, but he might be a trade candidate this offseason. 
and some of the rumors we've seen are really interesting. Um, some of the Pete Alonso rumors have kind of died off the last couple of weeks, but the Juan Soto rumors continue to heat up. So it looks like the San Diego Padres, who spent just an incredible amount of money last offseason, didn't make the playoffs. We're effectively out of playoff contention most of the season. They did make a late run to get within a couple games, but really they were never a serious contender for that spot. It would have been a complete, like everybody else playing down to let the Padres back in if it would have happened. And they are significantly overextended. I think they really thought after the playoff run they had in 2022 that they could go spend big this offseason, win a ring or go deep in the playoffs again, and then be able to sustain that. And they weren't. So they're looking, you know, Juan Soto has one year left. He's already turned down a $400-plus extension offer f- before he was ever traded away by the Nationals. It's pretty clear that San Diego doesn't have the payroll to extend him. So he's And he's a Boris client, so he's going to hit free agency and give it a try. And so Juan Soto is an amazing player. I know some people looked at, you know, one year he had a 247 batting average. But his worst season... His worst season in the major leagues is a 143 WRC plus. His on-base percentage is off the charts. He leads the league. He led the league in walks this year. I mean, he's an on-base machine. He's got power. He had 35 home runs this year, 27 last year, 29 the year before. And next season will be his year 25 season. You know, he came up when he's 19. This guy's an elite baseball player. He's an elite hitter. And some of the rumors, it was rumored towards the end of the season that San Diego was spending a lot of time scouting the Cubs system. There were reports out that San Diego was looking for cost-controlled pitching. Cubs have that. The Cubs have some young pitchers that have had major league experience that San Diego might be interested in as part of a package. Plus, you know, never mind the, the prospects the Cubs have coming up. We've also heard a lot of rumors lately about Christopher Morrell that the Padres really like him. There was a report, I think it was from Bleacher Nation, that said if the Cubs are willing to eat all of Soto's salary for 2024, it's estimated he'll get around $30 million in arbitration. And whoever trades for him is going to eat the money. I mean, that's the whole point. The Padres want the salary relief. And if for whatever amount of money the Padres kick in, it's only going to increase the prospect return that they get. If they send Soto and the team eats a salary, they're going to have to pay a little bit less for Juan Soto, even as good as Soto is. And so there was a report that if the Cubs ate the money, that Christopher Morrell might be enough for a one-for-one trade. I don't I don't think that's going to do it. I don't think it's going to be Morrell for Soto straight up. But it's important to note when you weigh the two players, like on the one hand, the Cubs being willing to trade Christopher Morrell does not mean that they don't believe in him, that they don't think he has a future in the major leagues, or that even that he's not a fit for their team. But you have to get a player like Soto, you have to give up talent. You're going to have to give up people that might go on to future All-Star games. That's okay. If you get Juan Soto, you're getting a really, really good baseball player in a year where you're trying to contend. And it gives you an entire season for him to fall in love with your organization. Now, he's a Boris client. He's going to go to free agency. And so he's, he's not going to give some hometown discount. But if you're willing to go spend on a star and that's the last thing now that I think Jed really has to prove that he's willing to do, he's the kind of guy that, you know, if the team likes him, if he's a fit with the organization, if he likes being in Chicago, the fans are going to love him. If he comes over, 
you know, suddenly he's probably a guy that, you know, the Cubs might be the team to beat to sign him in the the following off season. But if you have a chance to get a guy like Juan Soto, you get him. Um, because it's only for one year, you know, people look at the package that San Diego gave up. They gave up at the time their top, pretty sure it was their top three prospects. They definitely gave up three prospects that were in MLB's top 100 at the time. They paid a really steep price to get Juan Soto, but they were paying for two and a half years of Juan Soto and they bought him at the trade deadline when they were in a pennant race. So, you know, that's, that's how it's going to go. The Cubs are only buying one season. So the price is lower. The Cubs are not going to have to give up Pete Crow Armstrong or Cade Horton. I think probably the path for this trade, whoever the Padres trade him to, is it's probably either going to be a young, cost-controlled major leaguer that San Diego really likes, and that would be you know maybe a Christopher Morrell for the Cubs, along with a couple you know lower-tier prospects, or they would probably get two of the Cubs' top ten prospects probably outside the top three or four plus another couple lower tier prospects. And I think that trade happens. I mean, look at, you know, the Cubs traded you Darvish to the Padres as a salary move and they got Owen Casey out of the deal, but they picked up four teenagers and Zach Davies. You know, there are a bunch of different ways to structure these depending on what teams want. And at the time that the Cubs made the deal, they were shedding salary and they were much bigger on prospects than they were anything else. So they prioritized the prospects, then they took Zach Davies to fill out the rotation spot. San Diego's going to want stuff that's a lot closer to the big leagues. They're not going to trade for four or five teenagers. But if you get them the one or two higher-end prospects or a Christopher Morrell type and then a couple other, you know, A-ball lottery ticket type prospects, guys who are probably maybe top 20 of the Cubs award, but, you know, a couple of years from the major leagues, that's a deal that can happen. And I think there are a lot of reports out there that the Cubs would be among the front runners. And it makes sense. The Cubs have one of the deepest systems in baseball. They maybe don't have the quite the high-end talent that the Orioles or the Dodgers or some of the other teams do. But that's okay because nobody's giving up a top 10 prospect for one year of Juan Soto. This is not going to happen. I guess if somebody does vastly overpay. But if you go and look at the trades that have happened when the Dodgers traded for one year of Mookie Betts, you know, there have been other trades where a star is traded in the last year before free agency, and they just don't get that top dollar prospect return. They used to, but the way organizations value their prospects today, they just don't. So the Cubs really need to go get top level. I think what they ideally, my dream offseason, would be one starting pitcher, preferably a you know top end front half of the rotation starter, add at least one big bat whether that's re-signing Cody Bellinger, trading for Juan Soto. My dream is still Shohei Otani. I'm going to continue to try to speak it into existence. He fits this team absolutely perfectly. You would have him in as a left-handed power bat on a team that desperately needs left-handed power. He wouldn't pitch this year, but then in 2025, you would have Marcus Stroman coming off the books, Drew Smiley coming off the books, potentially Kyle Hendricks coming off the books, and he could slot right back into the top of that rotation. So if they were to go get Yamamoto out of Japan this year, or they were to go pick up or trade for another high-end starting pitcher, sign Shohei Otani, and then you know, you're know you cooking with gas for the next several years. But I think if they do those pieces, you know, the Cubs showed at 
throughout the season that Justin Steele was a top starter. Now he's been a top starter in baseball now for a season and a half. Will that continue? I think there's plenty of reason to think it will. But he's also not a big swing and miss guy. I talked a lot last week about the Cubs needing to get more whiff in their rotation. So whether they go for like an Aaron Nola or a Yamamoto or somebody who's a front-end starter who can get more Ks, I think that would be a great addition to this team. All of a sudden now, I expect Jameson Tyone to come back and be good. Marcus Stroman is going to pick up his option. If he's not traded, all of a sudden now you could have, you know, Steele and some new pickup as one and one A. Marcus Stroman, Jamison Tyone, and potentially Kyle Hendricks. And mixing right in there is Jordan Wicks. Cade Horton might make it up at some point next year. You've got Ben Brown, who's just about ready for the bigs. I don't think Hayden Wisniewski is done as a starting pitching prospect. So the Cubs have a lot of options, but getting that one more piece at the top, I think, would help a lot. The Cubs need to get whiff in the bullpen. I don't know if they explicitly have to go you know, pay top dollar for an established closer. I think Alzale has shown that he can be a very good closer. I think he has a chance next year to be you know, one of the top closers in the league. But there's no doubt they have to go get one or two more guys that you can use and leverage, whether they close or whether they're guys that you just trust to throw in there in the biggest spot in the game or to take the seventh and eighth inning, whatever. I had two guys with some swing and whiff to pair along with Julian Merriweather and Luke Little, Daniel Palencia, Mark Leiter Jr., whoever else they have in that bullpen next season, I think that's it. And if they can get one or two more good, solid bats, you know, that's what the Cubs need. When the you look at the Cubs' offensive stats this year, you know, it's it's pretty clear what they need. You know, you look through, overall, the Cubs had a pretty decent offense. I mean, they were, overall, they were pretty slightly above average. I mean, they were eighth in WOBA. They were 12th in the league in WRC+. Plus. They were 9th in war. They were average in K-rate. You know, they, had a thir- they were 13th in K-rate at 22.4%. They were 8th in walk rate. So this is a team that showed more play discipline in the past. They took their walks. They were a decent hitting team. They were league average 15th in home runs, 196. But when you look, you know, it's not necessarily just where the Cubs rank among playoff con- or among the league. It's where they rank among playoff contenders because that's the space they want to play in next year. And when you start going through these, the Cubs were – you know, 15th in home runs, but seven of the top eight teams in home runs made the playoffs. Milwaukee was the lowest one. They were 25th, but we know Milwaukee made it in on pitching. Um, Arizona and Miami were also down. So there were some teams that didn't make it, but those are teams that either you look at the raw numbers and nobody really knows how Miami made it in. Arizona made it in on some young pitching, young talent, kind of a quick start and a strong finish but not top to top. You know, the Cubs were eighth in stolen bases. I think they have good team speed. I think they used it appropriately. Um, When I look at the stolen base numbers across teams, there doesn't seem to be any clear, you know, clear tie to winning or making the playoffs. There were playoff teams that stole a lot and playoff teams that didn't, and it didn't really seem to have a big impact. But when you start looking at other factors, you know, things that really say power. You know, the Cubs had, I think, six guys that hit 20 home runs. Nobody hit 30, I don't think. Nobody hit 30. Certainly they don't have that 35 or 40 home run power guy. Now maybe Bellinger would have gotten to 35 if he'd been healthy all season. Maybe Seiya Suzuki, if he if he played the whole season like he played the last six, eight weeks, he certainly would have gone over 30. But the Cubs need that bigger threat. And when you look at ISO, the isolated power, which is basically 
it's basically slugging percentage, but take out all the singles. And that's what's left. I mean, the Cubs had an ISO of 167, 14th in the league, league average. That's kind of fine. But of the top 10 teams in ISO, seven of them were in the playoffs. You know, Atlanta was way up. I mean, Atlanta blew everybody else out. They had a 225 ISO, which is ridiculous. And LA was second at 197. So the Cubs were about as close at 14th. They were Cubs were as close to second place as the Dodgers were in second place to first place, which is a bit nuts. But then when you look at the hard hit ball stuff, the stat cast data, you know, the Cubs were 20th in average exit velo at 88.7. Among all the playoff teams, only Milwaukee was worse. And again, we, we know why Milwaukee made the playoffs and it's not their offense. Barrel percentage, the Cubs were 19th in barrel rate at 7.7%. Again, just like the homer numbers, that pretty well correlates. Only Milwaukee, Arizona, and Miami among playoff teams were worse than what the Cubs did. And hard hit percentage, the Cubs were 21st at 38.3%. Same deal. Only Miami, Milwaukee, and Arizona were worse out of playoff teams. Now, Arizona's in the World Series, and it's pretty clear there are a lot of different ways to win in baseball. But that's a way that the Cubs, I think, can really improve themselves in pretty short order. So I think the Cubs ought to be targeting power. You know, go get a couple of those power bats. Um, one thing I've seen is uh, I've seen that uh, Jimmer Candelario can probably be signed for a two- or three-year deal for 12 to $14 million per season. If that's the reality, maybe he's a good guy to plug in. He can float along and cover a number of spots. He can play third. He can play first. He can DH. And that gives you some flexibility. If it turns out that Matt Mervis has a massive spring and you want to give him a shot, maybe Candelario plays more third. If you run Christopher Morell out there at third base in spring training and he looks great, then maybe Candelario is more at first. It's just, he's a versatile option that gives you a lot of choices, just like Bellinger. So one of the reasons why Bellinger is such a good fit for this team is obviously he had a really good season. He might be able to replicate that hopefully he can. I mean, he's he's young. He's 28. There was a good piece by Brett Taylor of Bleacher Nation going through his some of, the, some of the drawbacks potentially to signing Cody Bellinger. There is some risk of regression. You know, certainly he's been injured. He's had two seasons significantly hurt by injury. That could always happen again, or that injury could prove to recur on some level. They... He also walked through Cody's larger, you know, like a 387 BABIP with two strikes, which is a little bit ridiculous. But then he also, you know, acknowledged a piece that Sahad of Sharma wrote and some feedback he's gotten from scouts that showed that Cody Bellinger clearly changed his two strike approach this year. He really cut down his K rate, he upped his batting average. And we saw it, it was highlighted a lot of times if you watch the games. A lot of times with two strikes, they would highlight that he just shortened a stroke up and slap a ball to left field. If he's willing to do that, and he's now shown he can do that, that's not luck. That's actually a skill. Now, can he do it as well as he did it this year as that becomes part of the book on him that pitchers have to prepare for? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But that's not like he's swinging for pull power and he just lucks some balls into left field. Now, he changed his approach and went for it. And if you're going to sign him to six, seven years, there's no guarantee that he's going to be worth the money the entire time. But I can look at every single free agent on the market, every star that comes up for free agency, maybe except for Juan Soto, because he's going to be heading into his 26-year-old season when he hits free agency. 
there's always an argument against. You know, Shohei Otani may or may not ever come back as anything approaching the pitcher he's been. If if he never pitches again, he's still a really valuable left-handed bat. But he's pushing 30. And again, like how how long is his, when does his aging curve kick in? Nobody knows. Any of these starting pitchers, we saw Jacob deGrom and Verlander and, you know, all these guys as they're aging, have some really big seasons and then also have some seasons where age is clearly catching up to them. They get hurt. So if you want to play that game that such and such player is not worth 25, 30, 35, 40 million dollars or more a season, if you're not willing to take some risk and play in that space, there's a certain level of player you're never going to have. You're not going to be able to sign the biggest star on the free agent market. If you have that star on your team, like a Chris Bryant, now, Chris is maybe a bad example because he really hasn't performed anywhere near the level he did early in his career. But if you have a guy who comes up, plays at an MVP level, he was one of your top prospects, comes up, absolutely performs, five years, hits free agency, if you're not willing to pay that price, not all players are willing to sign a hometown discount early in their career. Atlanta has some sort of cult running where everybody seems to do that. But that's really unusual. There are guys who do it. But even, you know, Tampa Bay had to pay a massive amount of money for Wander Franco. We'll see how that pans out given his off-field issues. The Washington Nationals tried to do it with Soto, and he declined. So you're going to have to, if you want to keep that level of player, if you want to have that superstar talent, you're going to have to pay for it at some point. And I think this is becoming the offseason where the Cubs need to do that. They have depth to trade for supplementing pieces, even top-level players, you know, go find somebody on a team that doesn't typically sign free agents, sign their own talent to f- extensions, and go see who has a year or two left of control that you can go trade for. That's a great move. And then also sign somebody big on the market. So I think the Cubs very clearly, in my mind, need to go get one high-end starting pitcher that's got some whiff, pro- one, probably two bullpen arms that have more swing and miss, they don't necessarily have to be top of the market guys, though. They can be guys that you can use in leverage spots, you know, maybe a higher level version of like a Merriweather. You're not going to find somebody like Merriweather all the time on the waiver wire. Um, but find somebody who's got good stuff, who's shown that they can do it, who's been in some of those big spots before. Bring them in. Year or two of team control is perfect. And then, you know, a couple big bats. And then the Cubs have to play you know, the versatility game and give their young players a chance to come up, but some are going to get traded. Which kind of takes me back to, last thing I want to touch on today is Kyle Hendricks. So there, I talked last week about rumors that the Cubs were working on an extension with him. There have also come been some reports come out saying that maybe they're not actually working on an extension with him right now. I, I could see it either way. Um, if you do an extension, the primary goal would be to pull his average annual value down to give you more of a wiggle room on the budget. You know, if if the Cubs pick up his option, it's for $16 million for next year, and that's it. If they extend him, I think there's probably a fair chance that they could get it done somewhere between two years, $20 million, two years, $24 million, somewhere in that 10 to 12 or $13 million per year range. That drops the competitive balance tax hit by a couple million dollars, maybe lets them pick up an extra reliever. But a couple of things you have to consider on the other side is if the Cubs want to add a top-level starter, 
if they also want to have Jordan Wicks in the rotation, you know, you have to go into a season, we say it over and over, with at least eight to ten starter options for the rotation. Guys are going to get hurt. Guys are going to miss starts. There are going to be some double headers where you got to pull a guy up to, you know, spot start. And the Cubs have a lot, plenty of those options right now. And so keeping Hendricks is not a problem. But if there are guys, you know, if you go sign an Aaron Nola or you pick up a Yamamoto and Marcus Stroman opts in and you don't, you know, or Marcus Stroman doesn't opt out and you don't trade him, those rotation spots start filling up and maybe Hendricks takes number five. Maybe that pushes Jordan Wicks back down to the minor leagues for at least part of a season. That's not necessarily the end of the world. I mean, I'm, I care more about the Cubs winning baseball games than I do about who specifically is in their rotation. If the Cubs manage to win a World Series next year and their young stud pitchers don't come up and pitch in the majors, I'm good. You know, I want the Cubs to win. But you have to factor that in. And then if you extend Kyle Hendricks for two years, it does pull that average annual value down. It also means that then you've got Kyle Hendricks in 2025. And he does still have the capsule retire on his shoulder that he's pitching through. Um, he clearly it worked to strengthen it up last off last off season into the first month or so of the season. He threw really well. At times he really looked like vintage Hendricks. But is that shoulder going to hold up over time? I think there are reasons to think it will, but there are no guarantees in life. So that's certainly a risk of doing the extension. And so that's something that Jed and company are going to have to figure out as they start to piece together the 2024 option. And, you know, we're coming up on time where right now it's all speculation. Nothing can happen. The World Series is, they're playing game four tonight. World Series is over five days after the World Series ends. All of this starts. That's when teams and players have to make decisions on their on their options. If a guy is a free agent, the team that had him this season has exclusive negotiating rights for that first five days after the World Series before they can really hit the open market. Trades can start happening five days after the World Series ends. There's a lot to come. And then, you know, we'll spend more time on this as, as we get really into the offseason. But the Cubs have will have a number of deadlines coming up like everybody else. You know, the Rule 5 draft. Who's going to be on the Cubs 40-man? Which, which guys are they going to try to maybe sneak through waivers? Stash in Iowa like the Cubs did with Mark Leiter Jr. and some others last year. Which guys are they going to protect? And then... They're probably going to cut that 40-man roster. Also, at the end of the five five days after the World Series, all the guys who are currently on the 60-man or 60-day IL, they have to be pulled off and either put through waivers or put on the 40-man roster. So they'll have some decisions to make on guys like Cody Hoyer and Ethan Roberts, a number of those guys who may or may not come back. I think Cody Hoyer is probably a guy they'll probably try to run through waivers. He's... Not quite the prospect level he was when the Cubs traded for him, obviously, after two arm injuries now. And he's probably not going to pitch for the bulk of 2024. So it's probably unlikely that somebody would pick him up in the grab him off waivers just to have to eat on their 40-man roster while he's not pitching. But someone like Ethan Roberts is now on a normal offseason. He was a Cubs former third-round draft pick, made the roster in 2022, had looked really good early and then it needed Tommy John surgery. So where is he going to go from here? He's a guy you might not want to expose to waivers. He probably does get picked up. You know, so they'll have a bunch of roster decisions to make. 
And the Cubs will probably try to get that 40-man roster down to 38 or 39 guys because they always like to be able to look for those Julian Merriweathers, you know, scan the waiver wire, see what somebody else is dumping that they might see that has value. So there's going to be a lot happening. And once we start seeing who is left on the 40-man roster, start seeing some of the early moves, get the decisions on the contract options, we're going to have a lot clearer idea of where this is going to go. Then December 3rd is the winter, start the winter meetings, I think, with uh, the GMs getting together. Last year, that was when a lot of the big free agencies started to happen. Now, we'll see if a lot of that happens this year or if because they're, especially on the hitting side, fewer guys at the top of the market, that might actually linger a little bit. We've seen in the past where some of those top guys don't sign until January, February, sometimes even creeping into spring training. So it's going to be an interesting offseason to watch. The Cubs have a lot of work to do. Hopefully the Cubs don't lose too many more people in their organization like we talked about in the beginning. But enjoy what's left of baseball. I know last night my 14U team played their last game, and it was amazing. We had a game pushed back. It was basically a makeup game we played. Here in Charlotte, it was the last gorgeous, beautiful baseball night we're probably going to have this fall. It was 85 degrees, sunshine, just a beautiful night. We're playing, team's a little sloppy, but the kids are excited to be there. We get behind 8-2, battle back to an 8-8 tie, fall behind 10-8, battle back again. We're up in the last inning, and you know we've got the winning run on third base. It's tied 10-10, two outs, three and two count, and the lights go up. And so I posted a picture today. The, the kids were just hanging out on the field. We were able to get the lights back on, finish it out. Ended in a tie, but it's so much fun to watch kids love baseball. And, and it just, it's a reminder that, you know, baseball is a lot of fun. And we want to find fun in baseball wherever we can. Obviously, that's the dream state is a World Series. That's not how it's always going to go. And so find baseball joy where you can. If others are finding joy, go watch them have, have fun with baseball. Love the game. Thank you for joining me today. If you like this episode, please drop a rating and a review wherever it is you get your podcasts and share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds from you gives me great feedback and helps other Cub fans find the show. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at CubsPS Plus. And check out the Patreon page at CubsPSPlus.Patreon.com to help support the show. As always, the theme music for this podcast is Prospect Park West by Jerry McCoy. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day.